You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson will lead tributes in the House of Commons to the Conservative MP Sir David Amos today, who was stabbed to death at a meeting with constituents on Friday. Last night, his family issued a statement saying that their hearts are shattered by his death as police investigate whether a suspect arrested was motivated by Islamist extremism. So with politicians looking again at the balance of safety versus availability of elected officials to voters, the Justice Secretary Dominic Raab says that abuse of politicians has increased. The elephant in the room in all this is the amount of online hate that we all get. It's out of control. I think the amount of vile abuse and the vilification directed at MPs, and in particular female MPs, I think it's got to stop. Out of control, says Rob. Well, a minute's silence will be held in memory of Sir David Amos in Parliament this afternoon. Well, in other political news, the former International Trade Secretary, Dr Liam Fox, has gathered business leaders from Virgin Atlantic, Heathrow, Fourth Ports, amongst others, for a year-long project to help to define and make a success of Global Britain. Now, he was speaking to me earlier today about what Global Britain means. He also rejected the accusations from the Manufacturers Association Make UK today that the government has abandoned any industrial strategy and sees business as, quote, the enemy. Well, it's how Britain is actually able to take advantage of the changes in the global economy in this sense, uh, how we are able to tap into growing markets uh, for both exports but also for investments. I don't think that the government for a moment sees business as an enemy. Uh, But what I want to do is to focus on the external elements, not internal uh, policy, but what is the outfacing part of the United Kingdom. So that was Dr Liam Fox, the Conservative MP for North Somerset, the former International Trade Secretary under Prime Minister Theresa May, speaking to me about his hopes, ambitions for global Britain. Well, joining me now is Gareth Bacon, who is Conservative MP for Orpington. Gareth, thank you so much for being with me today on what is a very difficult and very sombre day in Westminster. Condolences for the loss of your fellow MP, Conservative colleague, 
Would you, though, um, Gareth, want extra help now, plainclothes police officers at the face-to-face meetings that you hold with your constituents? It is a a very sombre day, I think. Just speaking to some of my colleagues over the weekend, um, we were devastated by the news on Friday. Um, You know, I would like to pay tribute to David, David Amos. He... I mean, in the short time that I've been in Parliament, I knew him a little bit before I got into Parliament, but in the short time that I've been here, uh, he was one of the most unfailingly cheerful, nice, good-hearted people you could ever wish to meet. Um, he he was you know, totally without any kind of pomposity. He would offer advice. He would he was very thoughtful about his colleagues, regardless of who they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for him to have died in such a brutal and, and completely unjustified way, it's very difficult for most of us to process, to be honest. And Friday was an extraordinarily difficult day. Um, and today, I suspect, will be similarly difficult. We've got a, um, we've basically cancelled all bit. We've, we've got home office questions, and then we're going to have uh, tributes to David for the next couple of hours. And then there's a church service taking place, which uh, members of Parliament and uh, members of the House of Lords will attend. And all other business has been cancelled today. And I think that that's uh, a mark of the esteem that he was held in. And I think that, that that's exactly right. Now, coming to your question um, mm. about security arrangements at surgeries, um, it is marked that uh, you really can't get at MPs when they're in Westminster. The, the security here is extremely tight. Um, you can't get in without appointments, and there are armed police everywhere. So if anybody did attempt to attack anybody in Parliament, uh, they, would be, um, they would be stopped very, very quickly. Um, but if somebody was trying to get to an MP, the surgery is the obvious place to do it because uh, most MPs, myself included, uh, do take it as part of our job to meet our constituents face-to-face and we make ourselves available to them. Um, but we don't yes. have huge security uh, in attendance when that happens. Um, and that is something that I think most of us are now taking advice on. I spoke to uh, my local police superintendent this morning about it um, and we'll be having a meeting later this week. So... I don't really know where we're going to end up with that. I, I very much mm. hope we don't end up in a situation where we can't see our constituents face-to-face. But it's not just about the MPs, of course. It's about the staff that attend with us. I mean, when David was, was killed on Friday, he had um, one of his, um, I think one of his constituency secretaries or caseworker perhaps was with him in the room. Now, this particular assailant uh, could easily have decided to take the knife to her as well. Mm. Um, and these are things that have to be considered very seriously and very thoughtfully. Um, but I do think that um, you know it, it's it's something we can't ignore any longer. No, uh, indeed. Uh, I mean, it, it is awful, really, to contemplate. Um, what do you make of what Dominic Raab has said? Then, sort of more broadly, about the tone of political discourse. I, I mean, I don't want to make this sound sort of trite, but this is part of it, isn't it? It's it's online. It's it's the kind of level of anger that that people have. Um, you know, because po- politics can be such a difficult thing. What what do you make of what Dominic Raab is saying? We have to try to lower that tone. What can you do? Well, he's he's right. Um, so Twitter, in particular, uh, seems to encourage hatred and extremism. Um, you can't have. Uh, particularly nuanced discussion in 280 characters on Twitter. So you tend to go to an extreme view one way or the other. And the fact that people can uh, have a Twitter account without actually proving who they are um, or providing any kind of means of identification at all encourages people to uh, get even more abusive than they might do because they're doing it behind a pseudonym and they, they think that they can't be traced. And the level of abuse that comes into members of parliament on Twitter is, is I mean, I... I you know, I've been in politics for a while, but I've only been in Parliament since 2019. So 
So I thought I knew what was what until I got here. And then the level of abuse was uh, really quite breathtaking. Um, and, you know, I'm by far from the most abused. There, there are other colleagues here who, who get spectacular levels of you know, nothing short of hatred coming through on social mm. media. Not so much if it comes through on email, because um, normally um, members of parliament will request that you give your name and address, otherwise you won't get a reply. Um, so people tend to be a bit more uh, careful what they say on email. But even on email, <clears throat> you'll get things coming through that really aren't acceptable. Um, and it encourages this kind of behavior. And, you know, it's, it's you know, one step from sending a hate-filled email to actually deciding to do something physical. And I do think that the time has come for things like this to be looked at in much more detail. Okay. Uh, Gareth, let's turn our attention to um, other politics today, if if we can, even just briefly. On business, so I was speaking to Dr. Liam Fox this morning earlier about global mm. Britain. Um, I mean, he sort of denied that Brexit has anything to do with the shortage of, of workers. And I've heard this from a number of Tory MPs who claim you know, that there are similar shortages in European countries. But Brexit has directly resulted in labour shortages here. And if the government and, and Conservative MPs deny that, that, then it's very difficult to get to grips with what is a really big problem in Britain now. Well, I mean, we're, we're in a transitionary period, um, moving from one established way of working into something different going forward. Um, and the points-based immigration system, which the government is in the process of bringing in, is designed specifically to make sure that uh, where there are gaps in, in specific fields, that we will able, be able to tailor that accordingly. Um, and it is true that there are labour shortages in various different uh, fields. We've been looking at HGV driver shortages. Uh, Britain is not, not unique. Um, in terms of having uh, a, a temporary shortage in HGV drivers. We've seen it in Germany. But it is it unique Poland, because it right of Brexit. It is unique no, in terms not. of the Brexit no, impact. I, I don't agree, because if it was to do with Brexit, there wouldn't be a driver shortage in Germany, and there is. So I don't think that's got anything to do with it. I think the pandemic has played a very big role um, in some of the supply chains being uh, limited because we're coming out of the pandemic across the world. And so there is a demand surge for certain things. Um, and I think that uh, economies have been very much shrunk over the last sort of year to 18 months. Um, and so I think it's natural that it will take some time for things to resume as they were. But it's a very tempting target for people to say this is all about Brexit. But I really don't believe that it is because it's not just affecting Britain. It's affecting other parts of Europe and the rest of the world. On COVID cases, um, sort of under the radar um, this weekend, the numbers look really quite bad. The UK recording the highest daily jump in new coronavirus cases since mid-July. Weekly deaths now above 800 for each of the past six weeks. How worried are you about COVID, um, you know, which is accelerating rapidly in the UK? Well, COVID is one of those things we've got to keep an eye on. But, you know, we can take quite a lot of reassurance from the fact that uh, the vaccines do work. Um, now, we, we know, just like the flu and, and with other viruses, you're never going to eliminate COVID completely. Um, unfortunately, it will be with us probably forever now. And, uh, you know, every year we will see people die of COVID. Um, but it's, it's very often we need to look at, under, look at the underlying causes. Is it just COVID that's killing people or is it people with other comorbidities? Um, and it is coming in and it's, it's, it's almost it's sort of finishing the process off. Or are people just dying with COVID? And I think now is the time to really sort of get underneath the detail of some of that because we have reopened our economy. Um, in my own household, my daughter got COVID over the summer. Uh, my wife and I are both double vaccinated and we had to isolate with her for 10 days. Mm. Uh, this was before we lifted the restrictions. It was early summer and neither of us got COVID. 
Um, so we do know that the vaccines are tremendously good at preventing transmission, but also at reducing the symptoms when it does, because yeah. sometimes you can yeah. get COVID even if you've been double vaccinated, but it reduces yes. the severity of it. So I think we've really turned a corner with COVID. Um, with the booster jabs program as being rolled okay. out, I think that's critically important. And I encourage everybody who's contacted and asked to go for a booster to get one. Yeah. And anybody who is unvaccinated at the moment, I would encourage them to do so as well. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. The Brexit minister, David Frost, has issued a statement following Friday's talks uh, with the European Commission Vice President Maros Sefcovic in Brussels about Northern Ireland trade. So Frost vows today to look at the EU Brexit proposals constructively, in his words, after the EU offered wide-ranging concessions, including a proposal to cut the number of customs checks on goods arriving in Northern Ireland by half – in order to fix the issues with the post-Brexit settlement. Now, the two sides are expected to hold talks for the next few weeks, with Frost saying that he wants to reach a resolution on Northern Ireland by November. Meanwhile, worldwide, more than 200 million women are estimated to have osteoporosis and one in three women over the age of 50 will experience fractures, bone fractures, because of poor bone health, which is increasing as populations age. The International Menopause Society has published a new report to highlight these concerns for today, which is World Menopause Day. And just lastly, Ford will invest as much as £230 million to start making electric vehicle components at an existing plant on Merseyside. The Halewood facility will be retooled to start building electric power units from 2024 to gradually replace manufacturing of combustion engine transmissions. And it will also safeguard around 500 jobs at the site close to Liverpool. So those are a few of the stories that we're focused on in terms of uh, politics and business. Now, on to our big conversation. Rich nations are still dragging their feet on helping poorer countries to protect their populations from COVID-19, despite the pleas from the World Health Organization and the COVAX pledges. Nearly a year after the first vaccine campaigns began, the vast majority of jabs have gone to citizens in wealthy countries countries. Well, what would change that? A new coalition of leading philanthropies has come together to try to push for action. They include the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation and the Open Society Foundation. And joining me now is Mark Malik-Brown, who is president of the Open Society Foundations and also former Deputy UN Secretary General. Mark, welcome back to Bloomberg Westminster. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure, my pleasure. 
Now, developed nations are awash in vaccines. Why won't they donate them? Well, it is. I mean, there are plenty of reasons, but just to build on what you said, I mean, 61% of the developed world have had at least their first dose, while 4% of Africa have had their first dose. Just, you know, take last Friday, um, uh, 800,000 people in the developed world got a booster. Uh, less than, well, less than 180,000 people in the developing world as a whole got their first shot. So the, the sort of inequality of distribution is growing, not shrinking at the moment. And there are, by some accounts, up to several hundred million doses risking expiry in the developed world, sitting in warehouses, uh, unused. Now, you know, when you press Western governments for the why on this, they understandably put the health security of their own citizens first, and and I think we all understand that. But they don't go the next step, which is to recognize even their own citizens aren't safe, however many chaps you give them, you know, unless the world is made safe. You know, unless the whole world has got a sufficient level of vaccination, we're going to see it seems, according to the experts, you know, continued resurgences of new variants of COVID, which is going to make international travel, the operation of the international economy, you know, very difficult and the risk to life continuous. What damage will it do in terms of inequality in those countries that are the losers in, I mean, I'll call it a vaccine war? Yeah, well, I think the inequality comes at three levels already. We see the public health inequality, uh, which is somewhat protected against by the younger age of their population. But nevertheless, and, and, you know, the fact, frankly, they have to struggle with a lot of other tropical diseases in many cases as well. But nevertheless, you know, this will have a huge public health impact. It will have a very large economic impact. Last week, the IMF reported that uh, while most of the developed world would recover to pre-pandemic levels of growth very quickly and, in fact, has enjoyed a surge of growth and a catch-up growth uh, post-COVID. The developing world was going to suffer long-term scarring in many parts and uh, the IMF predicted slower growth. So inequality in an economic sense will increase with actually hundreds of millions in those countries already thrown back into absolute poverty. Uh, But the third effect, frankly, is political. There is a strong sense in much of the developing world, particularly Africa, but also parts of South Asia and some other regions, that this injustice, if you like, of, of, of vaccine distribution reflects a wider political neglect of the developing world. And that, in turn, I think is going to really affect multilateral politics and international politics. The West is losing ground. It's losing friends. It's felt to have turned its back on many countries. And then when we want their support on different international initiatives, such as climate change, I think we're going to be looking over our shoulder and find many of our friends aren't there anymore. Mm. Should the World Health Organization be strengthened to force change? I mean, given that scientists warn, uh, medical professionals warn that there will be more future pandemics. Definitely. And there's a very good report 
led by two former prime ministers, or a former prime minister of New Zealand and a former president of, of Liberia, which the World Health Organization commissioned and has had quite extensive coverage, both amongst the member states, the World Health Organization, and at the UN General Assembly recently. And it lays out lots of sensible proposals for strengthening uh, the response. The difficulty is that, you know, after every crisis, there are efforts to strengthen WHO. But countries remain, you know, very sovereign, very particular, very protective of uh, their health data and slow to share it when things Mm. start to go wrong. And, you know, there's a challenge for the World Health Organization to get the kind of preventive powers and authority it needs to come in early around these issues. Now, you know, the truth is, without the World Health Organization, we'd be in a hugely worse case. You know, the Chinese, for example, historically, and particularly now, would be very reluctant to share their health data directly with the U.S. But through the intermediary mechanism of the World Health Organization, data does get shared, but it just gets shared too slowly uh, for a pandemic-like crisis. And Mm. Similarly, the prevention steps are similarly too slow. Countries are reluctant to close down and cut themselves off from the international economy. So, yes, the WHO needs many more powers, but, you know, it's no good giving it to them on paper in, in, some, in, in terms of endorsing a pandemic report unless it's combined with the real political will from government, the recognition that these kinds of public health episodes a part of our collective future, and we need really robust mechanisms uh, to handle it. And, Mm. you know, a a country like the UK, which would even put up with European coordination, what real prospect that it's going to be a loyal partner to to a global effort of that kind, and many other countries the same. Well, Mark, I wanted to, to come on to the UK and the Johnson government, which has taken credit for the successful rollout of the vaccine here in, in Britain. And I have heard, you know, MPs tell me from, from the Tory party that they are in favour of, of helping, you know, friends abroad and so on. What has the UK done? There seems to be quite a contrast between the idea of global Britain and then, you know, helping with vaccines and, and other issues too. Well, you know, the UK was leading at the first effort to really mobilize a big global response, which was the G7. And there was a general view privately amongst the G7 partners, more publicly in the media, that, you know, Boris Johnson really sort of missed an opportunity. There wasn't the effective, strong leadership of the G7 that people had hoped for and anticipated. So the White House under President Biden stepped in at this General Assembly and called a summit of its own, which Boris Johnson managed to miss because of a double booking in his diary. Um, but where, you know, other mem- member countries did step up and, you know, increase the future promises. But, you know, what's missing is distribution and delivery now. And secondly, the freeing of doses to go to the to, to, to developing countries. So, for example, Africa, uh, in despair at the failure of the Western has put together its own war chest of about $400 million, but can't find the doses to buy. And when it does find some, it's being forced to pay top dollar ahead of even what Western countries have paid for a dose. And then behind the supply issue is 
the distribution issue. There isn't a strong enough plan for the distribution to get from delivery of shots, shots in arms. A lot of the places the shots have to go have weak public health uh, delivery systems, which need strengthening in generally and certainly uh, strengthening for this purpose. And, you know, while Western states are now making pledges of headcount doses, they're not making yeah. the supporting pledges of the sort of public health resources, which are probably three and some say seven to one uh, in terms of for every dollar of dose, you need three or seven dollars of public health support to get that dose delivered. And a country yes, like many the UK slashed in today's budget, you know, is, is, is particularly high in the curve all on that. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.